Thank you, Lorraine and Aaron, for leading us in those songs today. Really glad to see all of you. Uh, welcome to our visitors today, and a special welcome back to Emma and Kieran, who are back where they should be, in Melbourne. <laughs> um, it's good to see them again, as well as all of you. I want to begin by acknowledging our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We acknowledge you, Lord, because you are creator, provider, and supreme owner of all things. We also respectfully acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, who are traditional custodians of the land. We pay tribute to elders past and present and acknowledge that they have cared for this country over countless generations. And we recognize the continuing contribution that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people make to the life of Australia and pray that we can work together to leave a legacy of reconciliation, justice, and hope for all future Australians. And from Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth and everything on it belong to the Lord. The world and its people belong to him. Today is the beginning of the National Reconciliation Week, which started as a week of prayer, actually, in 1993 by major faith communities, but now it's celebrated and commemorated across Australia by different organizations. It commemorates two significant milestones. First, on 27th of May, 1967, a referendum was taken in which Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders were given the right to vote and hold citizenship. And also, second, it commemorates the High Court Mabo decision on the 3rd of June, 1992, which recognized native title rights of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and overturned the idea that this land belonged to no one until it was claimed. On Tuesday, as a member of the Australian Union Executive, I'm actually flying out to WA to visit uh, Mamaratha, Mamaratha College, um, which is an Aboriginal college um, established by the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Australia um, in 1980. Oh, sorry, not 1980. It was 1997, sorry. Um, and I'm really excited to visit. It was my first time visiting. And the word Mamaratha is a composite word from the Western Desert Aboriginal language and Hebrew. So it's like a mix of the two. And it actually means God makes whole, which I think is such a beautiful promise. And I'm extremely proud of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Australia for, for learning and growing from the past mistakes and for making space and giving voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people over the years. There's actually a department called ATSIM, Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander Ministries, that's been a part of the Australian Union um, Conference since 1980. And ATSIM provides both administrative and departmental support to the nine conferences that govern um, Australia. Um, and also they support people in the Torres um, Strait and the Pacific Islands as well. In May of last year, the Australian Union adopted the Reconciliation Action Plan and the establishment of a Reconciliation Committee to recommend ways that we, the church, can participate in God's work of healing. And so I ask for your prayers that we can continue to work together to bring about healing for all people here together. Would you join me in prayer as we begin? Father God, I want to thank you for giving us this week uh, to remind us that we all have ways to grow, that we all have ways to learn, and that we all need healing, that we all need reconciliation. And Father, as we continue our series on the reasons why we read the Bible differently, I pray for your Holy Spirit to help us to recognize our bias, to recognize our limitations, but also to confess that you are good and that through your Holy Spirit, the miracle of conversion and the miracle of understanding new truths is possible. 
And I pray for clarity of thought and for every heart uh, listening here in this room, as well as those watching online and listening to the podcast later, that you would bless them and help them to experience you in a powerful, tangible way. We pray in your son's name. Amen. So last week I started a new series on the seven reasons that I believe we read the Bible differently. And so last week we looked at reason number one, that one of the reasons why we read the, the Bible, right? We all have one Bible, but why so many de- denominations? Why so many differences in doctrines? And we said that one of the reasons is because we read the Bible with different lenses of um, what's called hermeneutics or uh, the doctrine of revelation inspiration, which is, you know, the question of was the Bible written word by word directed by God, which is called verbal inspiration, or was the Bible written through thought inspiration, where God inspires uh, the prophets with the message and they relate it in human language, in human terms and experiences and expressions through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the implications of having those two different uh, ideas and, and, and viewpoints and what that has meant for Bible interpretation over time. Today is part two, and we're going to be looking at reasons two, three, and four, which are that we have our own bias and our own prejudice and worldview that colors the way we read the Bible. Also, we have pride, right? We don't, we don't want to admit that we could be wrong and we have fear and unwillingness to actually explore. Because what if, what if, you know, um, stepping out into the unknown means that um, everything that was my sure foundation gets shaken? And that fear, I recognized <laughs> last Sabbath when when I preached part one, and then I had to run off because I was sick. And you know, if you remember, I preached and dashed, and like left you all to be like, oh no, now what? <laughs> and so today, hopefully, we can answer some of those questions together. But I knew you would all be okay because you are all very robust individuals who, who um, are happy to explore. And of, of course, number four is not being in spiritual community. In other words, um, we'll talk more about this today, but the idea that you come to your own kind of understanding of the Bible, well, how do you know it's right? Well, it really helps to be in a community where you can have accountability and bounce off those ideas and share together and learn together. Now, next week... Don't come here because we're going to be having a home worship. Um, so you're welcome to come to our house in Coburg or to Janice and Martin's house in Seddon. We are not going to be having an Eastern home group next week because um, lots of the Eastern group are away or um, preoccupied at the moment uh, with the new baby. So we're going to be um, just merging the Eastern group. You're welcome to come to our place in Coburg or join uh, Seddon. So next week, don't come here. But the week after that, come back here because we will continue our series and finish off with oops, reasons five through seven, which are different Bible translations. And we've briefly touched on this already, but we'll go more into that. Um, also, a misunderstanding of the historical and literary context of the Bible. And we're gonna, um, I'm going to share tools to help guide you through how you can overcome those barriers. Um, so bear with me uh, for that one. It'll be... Um, Bring your laptops and your and your phones, and um, if you have study Bibles, and I'm going to show you and teach you how to how to go through those. Um, and of course, number seven is just we just don't prioritize reading the Bible, and so a superficial, you know, casual reading of the Bible is going to lead to very different conclusions than when you go deeper and when you study and when you spend time um, in prayer. All right, so those are the seven. We're going to delve into two, three, and four today. 
Did you know that the human brain can process 11 million bits of information every second? But it's unconscious, meaning you're not even aware that you're doing this. Like right now, I'm looking out at all of you, seeing your beautiful faces, and my brain is processing the color of your jacket, right? And it's processing, oh, I haven't seen that person in a while. All these things are happening all very quickly in my mind, and I'm not even aware of it. And did you know that compared to the 11 million bits of, of information that gets processed by your unconscious brain, that the conscious mind, which is actually thinking, oh, it's lovely to see I mind Kieran again, you know, um, I see Kieran's beard has, you know, changed shape, like that conscious mind, right? It takes 40 to 50 bits of information a second. So that's very little compared to 11 million, right? And so what we don't realize is that that 11 million bits of, uh, of information that is unconscious or subconscious is getting processed in order for your brain to give you shortcuts. Because imagine how long your day would be if you had to think about which shoe to put on first, right? Do you think about that? No, you, you get your shoes, you put them on, and you don't have to think about it. It's become automatic because your brain is taking shortcuts because it would, you would get decision fatigue if all day long you had to make decisions on everything you did. So in general, it's good that 11 million bits of information get processed without you having to think about it. Things like perception, memory, learning, thought, and language, right? I don't have to choose my words too carefully because hopefully I know English. <laughs> we'll see how that goes today. But generally, even though this is a good thing, we have to also acknowledge that the 11 million bits of information somewhere in there also means that we have implicit bias. Implicit bias are attitudes that we hold subconsciously based on our upbringing, our experience, and our culture that impacts the way we feel about other people and situations. And this happens without us even realizing. So for example, if, you know, if I weren't happily married and I told you that I met somebody and I said to you, and, and they're like, oh, you know, what's their name? What do they do? And I said, oh, his name is Joe and he's an undertaker is your immediate response, I can't wait to meet him, right? Or the moment you hear the word undertaker, you're like, oh, you're a little taken off guard. Why is that? You haven't even met the guy. He might be super nice, right? That we have this subconscious bias associated with undertakers that is not justified because they're fantastic people, I'm sure. Here's another example. Psychologist Timothy A. Judge and researcher Daniel Cable have found that there's a height bias. Did you know this? That people who are taller actually um, are generally regarded as being leaders, even though they might be horrible leaders, even though they might have no experience or qualifications. Just because they're taller, they just look like they'd be a good leader. And so um, they've done quantitative research in this. And because of this, taller people tend to get promoted more. And therefore, taller people earn more. I uh, forget the exact numbers, but it's something like $600 more per inch um, than other people. So if you're tall, you've got to ask yourself, is, is, is this, have I been a privileged recipient of the height bias? And this bias is nothing new. For over 3,000 years um, and more, we have seen this bias. So in the scriptures, um, there's a prophet named Samuel who is told that God has chosen a new king. 
And so God sends Samuel to um, this family, and he says, you know, I'm going to choose a new king from, from the sons of Jesse. And so Samuel goes, and he sees Eliab, who is this tall, you know, son. He's the oldest and the tallest, and he thinks, this must be the man. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, the Lord says to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the not-so-tall people, God sees you. He knows you're a leader. You see, when it comes to reading the Bible, we have cultural bias that we don't even realize that we have, but it impacts the way that we read a Bible passage. Here's an example. Randall Richards, um, Randolph Richards and Brendan O'Brien have written a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And they talk about how um, one of them is a professor at the seminary, and he was teaching. And what he discovered was so surprising that he then went and did um, broader research with 100 people. So what he did was he took 100 North American students, and he asked them to read the parable of the prodigal son. And he asked them to then retell this story. And... 100 people retold the story of the prodigal son, which is found in Luke 15, for those of you who are interested later. And in this story, in the retelling of the story, only six out of the 100 people mentioned the famine that the prodigal son experienced away from home. Meanwhile, when they had 50 Russian readers read the parable and then retell it, 42 out of 50 mentioned the famine. Why? Because... In World War, during World War II, the Russians had experienced a severe famine that had left an indelible mark on their history and on their culture and in their consciousness. So it impacted the way they remembered that story. Or in the story of the Good Samaritan, a man is attacked by robbers and is left for dead by the side of the road. And then a priest happens to come by. Now, depending on how you feel about priests, you're either thinking, oh, good, he's going to be saved. Or you're, or you're thinking, oh, that poor guy on the side of the road, he's not going to get any help. Or you might feel even more you know, negative uh, feelings in the moment you hear that word. All of those are associations and bias that we have that wasn't meant for the original audience of Jesus' day. When Jesus told the story of the, of the Good Samaritan and mentioned, and the priest came by, Right? Everyone listening to him would have been like, oh, this man is, 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 is going to be duty-bound to help this man. And, there's gonna be, and, and the twist then when they, he doesn't help, and then the twist when the Samaritan, who is the enemy of the Jews, comes and helps, that would have really been you know, a punch in the guts for the Jews listening to this story. We don't have that same reaction. right? And so how we respond to a Bible passage is going to be impacted by our own cultural bias. There's also confirmation bias, which is the tendency to search for evidence that supports your personal belief while dismissing or overlooking contradictory claims. Slavery, discrimination, and all kinds of abuse, including the ideology that led to the stolen generation, have all been justified by Christians who quoted the Bible. These proof texts right, are taken completely out of context and put on you know, boards or put on agendas in order to justify their own ideology. 
Then there's the backfire effect, which is when someone challenges you and you want to strengthen your position, so you double down, right? You've seen that happen where people um, feel like they're cornered and instead of, you know, okay, yeah, I concede, they double down and they're like, nope, I will, you know, it's all or nothing, right? And they just say, I have nothing to lose and they just get even stronger and, and adamant in their belief. This is caused by pride and fear because we don't want to risk losing what we've invested time, finances, and emotions in. And we also don't want to be rejected by the group that we belong to, which is the other thing. There's the in-group bias or the tribal effect, right? If you think about it, birds of a feather flock together. So you're with people who think like you. And if one of those people who think like you say, oh, can you believe what that person said, right? And, and they're all like, oh, yeah, I can't believe that that person said that. And what that does to your brain is letting you know, you better never say that, right? Because if you do, you will also be rejected by this group. So that tribal effect is happening, whether you are consciously thinking of it or not. And then there's also the illusory truth uh, effect, which is thinking something is true just because you've heard it before, especially on social media. You've seen it a million times, so surely it must be true. For example, pop quiz. How many wise men visited Jesus when he was born? The answer is zero, right? Because in the Bible, it actually says that the wise men visited Jesus way after he was born, and because they saw the star and then they had to like travel and it took them a very long time. Also, it doesn't say how many of them there were. It doesn't say there were three wise men. It just says there were wise men. They gave three gifts, but it could have been like 10 wise men giving three gifts. It could have been two wise men giving gifts, three gifts, right? We don't know the exact number. And yet, Christmas cards, Christmas carols, Christmas plays, all have three wise men coming to the manger next to the shepherds, right? And celebrating the birth of Jesus. This is an example of illusory effect because we've seen it so many times before we've, it's been repeated so many times, we think it's true because of its familiarity. Research has shown that the earlier we form a belief, the harder it is to shake. This is called belief persistence. We tend to cling to the first compelling arguments that we encounter. So all of this begs the question, is objective truth knowable? And when it comes to the Bible, can we ever hope to interpret it correctly? I want to present to you today that while we may not be completely objective, we can do things to reduce our bias. And yes, I do believe that we can come to know objective truth. Here are my, oh, it says seven, but there are eight. Here are my eight tips on how to reduce our bias. First, we have to be honest and humble enough to acknowledge that we have bias. There's an atheist professor um, and philosopher of law who wrote, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I admire his honesty, right? He's honest. He's, he's able to admit his bias. Are we able to do the same? It doesn't make our position any weaker to admit 
that yes, we're biased. It just means we're honest and we're humble. And our bias does not negate all our experience and all the evidence. It's important to admit that it exists, though, so that we can actually address it. There are some challenging questions we have to ask ourselves, such as, why do I believe what I believe? Do I identify myself in a subgroup? And this is, I find, very um, unfortunate, that we say, well, I'm conservative, or I'm liberal, and I'm, you know, and when we identify ourselves with a subgroup, it makes it really hard for us to then look at the claims and the ideas of the other camp, right? When we become very partisan in what we believe. Am I open to hearing views from a diversity of believers? And do I have a diversity of friends from different faith backgrounds? Or am I just in an echo chamber where I hear back, resounding back to me what I want to hear anyway? So that's the first tip. Here's the second tip. We have to pray for the Holy Spirit to help us see with new eyes. If there is a God, and if he gave us the Bible, then surely he wants us to understand it. And so when we ask for his help, then we can claim that he will help us understand. But we have to confess our limitations and genuinely be open to hearing him. One of my favorite Bible passages is in Isaiah chapter 55. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. I have claimed this passage so many times over the years, right? Where I, I preached a sermon and I think, ah, oh, completely bombed it, right? And I just think to myself, sorry, God, I've, I've botched it up. I don't, I don't think I made it clear. I think I, I, I confused everybody. And then I'll get a message from someone saying, wow, that really spoke to me. I really needed that this week. And I know in that moment that that was 100% God, right? Taking his word and making it bear fruit in spite of me, right? And so God is saying, hey, my word doesn't come back empty. It's going to give, and I love how it says, it's going to give bread to the eater as well as the planter, right? The sower and the receiver are both blessed through the word. Here's tip number three. Read the passage in context as a whole story. Please don't just take, um, you know, a few things out and say, yep, this is the belief or this is the doctrine. You have to read the Bible in context. I want to challenge you to read the entire Bible at least once in your life. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, right? You don't have to go in order, but at least once in your life, you need to read the whole thing so that you know what the entire picture is about. And when you study a passage, try not to limit yourself to just a few verses. You can when you want to go deeper, but first read that chapter, the chapter before, the chapter after, minimum. And that way, then you can understand the bigger picture and then zoom in on the few verses that you want to focus on. Also, read other passages that talk about similar ideas as what you're reading about so that instead of thinking, oh, well, God, that's what God says about this, right? You have a more balanced view. 
Because let's face it, um, a good parent doesn't say the same things to all kids at all times. There are times when I will take, tell one kid, you know what, maybe you should, you know, put yourself out there more and, and, and go and talk to new people. I might say the next day to another kid, you know what, maybe you should spend some quiet time, right? And just give, a, give yourself a break from, from all the social stuff. Am I being inconsistent? No, I'm giving consistent advice, which is about balance to two kids who are very different at different times. And so when we read the Bible, we have to understand that God is giving different advice to different people, but there's a universal, consistent truth and principle that we need to be able to then extrapolate. Tip number four, ask a lot of questions. I think this is the most important part, actually, of reading the Bible passage. A lot of times you read the passage, oh yeah, and I know the story, I know the lesson. But try to read it with fresh eyes. Try to read it as if you have never read this before. Cross-examine your presuppositions and ask a ton of questions. Like, why did that happen? Right? Why did God say that? What is unusual or expected? What is not said? And how does this fit in with the picture of God? One of the founders of the Adventist Church and a personal hero of mine, Ellen White, wrote this. She said, There is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed and that all our expositions of Scripture are without an error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. We are living in perilous times, and it is, does not become us to accept everything claimed to be truth without examining it thoroughly. Neither can we afford to reject anything that bears the fruits of the Spirit of God, but we should be teachable, meek, and lowly of heart. I love that quote, right? Truth can afford to be fair. Truth doesn't lose anything by close investigation. Once we have asked a bunch of questions, we engage resources to answer those questions the best we can. And like I said, we're going to be talking about this in the next uh, sermon, so I'll skip going to too much about that. We listen to a diversity of views. Don't be afraid to read and watch and listen to material that, that are from a variety of sources. I'm not talking about exposing yourself to harmful content, but about respectfully trying to understand different perspectives so that we can gain a deeper depth understanding of the Bible. And not just listen, observe. People who have different views, what are their lives like? What are their characters like? What are their relationships like? Observe the consequences or the implications of their beliefs. Do those beliefs make them more like Jesus? Right? I think this is such a practical step that we sometimes skip. Number seven is pray and study in community. In Proverbs 18, verse 17, it says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes along and examines him. The reason why there's a jury in a trial, right? Why, why not just have a judge make the decision? It's because you need multiple people to examine evidence and come to a conclusion, right? Why is there a committee to make board decisions? Can't just the CEO call the shots? It's because there's a recognition that in diversity and in community, we come to a better conclusion. 
It's the same thing with our picture of God. Not one of us has a complete picture of God, right? Every single one of us has a fragment, and we all need to come together to see a fuller picture of God. And tip number eight is to live out the word. It's not enough to just think and talk about what we've learned. We need to live it out consistently to see if it's true. Is it true that when you prioritize setting aside tithe for God, that he supplies your needs? Is it true that when you forgive someone, that you experience God's mercy? Is it true that when you surrender your heart to God, you're filled with the fruit of the Spirit? Is it true that when you believe in God, you can, as we sang earlier, face tomorrow? I want to, because of time, skip four pages. (laughs) And I want to get to... um, the application bit. When we're presented with something that challenges our currently held views, what is our response? Are we willing to give it a fair go? Or are we resistant to new ideas? I um, Let me just skip all this. Oh, go back. This is the bell curve of change. Are you an early adopter? Or are you one of the laggards, right? You don't want to change, right? You don't want to adapt a new idea. And that's okay. If that's where you are, that's where you are. But I think it's important to understand that change is not the enemy. The early Seventh-day Adventist church was founded because of the willingness to admit that sometimes we had the wrong presuppositions. A group of sincere Christians from a variety of backgrounds had studied the prophecies in Daniel presented by the Baptist William Miller, and they believed that Jesus was going to come on October 22, 1844. And when he didn't come, they were bitterly disappointed, and they were at a spiritual crisis. Some said, forget this, and left. Others said, okay, we were wrong. What were we wrong about? Let's go back and look at it. And they prayed, and they studied, and they listened to each other. They talked it out. Individuals like Hiram Edson, who was a 38-year-old Methodist farmer. Individuals like John Loughborough, who was a 12-year-old Methodist blacksmith. Joseph Bates, 52, Anglican sailor. John Andrews, 15, Episcopalian, about to enter law school. Ellen Harmon, 17, homeschooled. John Byington, 46, a pastor from the Wesleyan Church. These individuals came together, studied the Bible, and for the next 15 years, they established regular Bible conferences. They wrote newsletters. They, they studied the Bible, and they came up with new truths that have been neglected and forgotten for centuries. Truths like the Seventh-day Sabbath, what really happens after you die in Christ's ministry in the, in the heavenly sanctuary. They had the humility to be able to consider that they had been wrong, the passion to seek the truth, and the courage to change their beliefs, for which they got kicked out of their denominations. And when they got kicked out, they said, well, we have nowhere to go now. And so they banded together, and they formed the Seventh-day Adventist Church, not because they were trying to make a new denomination, but because they had been kicked out. <laughs> And as they grew in number, they realized, oh, we need to organize ourselves. But when they were organizing themselves, uh, a couple of things came up. 
One is, let me just, this idea of present truth, which is from Second Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They took this idea from this passage of present truth, the idea that they don't have it all, they don't know it all, but that they were willing to learn. James White, who was one of the co-founders, said, In Peter's time there was present truth, or truth applicable to that present time. The church has ever had a present truth. The present truth is now. It's that which shows present duty. So in 1861, this group finally decided to organize themselves. But when the question of a creed came up, a creed is a formal statement of beliefs, the early Adventist pioneers said, no, we will not have a creed. In fact, listen to John Loughborough. He said, the first step of apostasy is to get up a creed, telling us what we shall believe. The second is to try members by that creed. Uh, there's a third missing. The fourth, to denounce as heretics those who do not believe that creed. And fifth, to commence persecution against such. And so John Loughborough said, no, we will not have a creed. And so the delegates unanimously voted to adapt instead a church covenant that simply said, we the undersigned hereby associate ourselves together as a church, taking the name Seventh-day Adventists, covenanting to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That was it. That was their core business. Uriah Smith, one of the founders, said, we have been enabled to rejoice in truths far in advance of what we then perceived. But we do not imagine that we have it all by any means. We trust to progress still, our way growing continually brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Then let us maintain an inquiring frame of mind, seeking for more light, more truth. And Ellen White, who received hundreds of visions, and so you would think she would say, yep, we've got it all. But she said there will be a development of the understanding. This is 1903. For the truth is capable of constant expansion. Our explanation of truth is yet incomplete. We have gathered up only a few rays of light. Can you imagine? 1903, they've already come up with so many new truths, and they're saying we have only received a few rays of light. Present truth does not mean that we throw everything out that we've learned and start over. It means we build on the foundation of our pioneers. It means we then go deeper and wider and longer into the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love. Present truth means we don't have to be afraid to study and explore and discuss together. It means we undertake the legacy of humility to admit that we have bias. The legacy of commitment to seek and to know and love God with all our hearts, all our souls, and all our minds. The legacy of courage to dare to change and obey and share the God that we discover with those around us, even when that makes us different. We must make the choice, as did the early pioneers, not to just blindly follow what others tell us in the church, either by me or others, or in the world, but to personally, consistently, thoroughly, systematically, 
diligently, prayerfully study the word of God for ourselves. And then when we live it out and we share it as to a light shining in a dark place until that day dawns and the morning star, Jesus, is born in our hearts, until that day, we can never say we know it all. We can never say that we can't be wrong. Until that day, we have to be committed to coming together, praying together, studying together, questioning together, and being humble together that God still has more to teach us. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father God, as we talk more about what it means to have present truth, the idea of letting go of our biases and leaning into what you have to teach us for today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us humility and conviction and courage as you did the early pioneers, as you did the Bible authors, as you did Jesus' disciples who are willing to face persecution in order to follow you. I pray that as we um, go into our discussion shortly, that your Holy Spirit would help us to learn from each other and to, to help us realize that we as a community need each other in order to see you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I invite Aaron and Lorraine back up for our closing song. <laughs>